This podcast is on chi and metis. One way to study what we might call at NDU so-called unorthodox or indirect and narrative-driven warfare is to introduce ourselves to the vast scholarship on the Chinese concept of qi and the vast scholarship on the many Greek concepts of metis, a phenomenon that was discussed in Lesson 17 in our Lawrence Friedman reading. And related to qi and metis, we have the U.S. and British English word or definition for influence. These three concepts, that is qi, metis, and influence, are not synonyms, but they offer some overlap, some insight into one another in the fields of warfighting and national security. So let's start with the concept of influence as a prelude into the concepts of qi and metis. Now there are many definitions of influence within strategic studies and the study of national security. And some of these I'll offer to you, some of these you've probably read. There are those that are synonyms with the word affect. To influence something is to affect something. It's a very broad definition. There are those that are word-for-word synonyms for strategy itself, such as the RAND definition, which I'll provide you. And there are those more nuanced definitions that perhaps are limiting, as we see in the Lawrence Friedman reading, uh, that is in his final chapters, looking to narratives or only to the information instrument of state power as it is traditionally taught. Now, I'm going to provide you competing definitions and theories of influence. The important thing is that you use the definition that's helpful to you, actionable, practical, and clear. It is also important because the term narrative, like the term influence, is very often understood and practiced differently by different people and different agencies. So, this year at NDU, when you have a speaker that throws around the term influence, if that is central to what she or he is saying, it behooves us to ask what they mean exactly. Not for some endless and pointless academic debate, but simply to know what they mean for clarity of communication. So the definition that I use, and I'm in the minority here as far as definitions of influence, those that are actually conduct, command, or execute influence campaigns, that I like to use is a legal definition of influence, one that is used in some circles at the Department of Justice. It's untranslatable to other languages, but it can be interpreted usually through a number of sentences. I use the definition for two reasons. The first and I'll give the definition in just a minute. The first is clarity of communication. That anyone in any country, especially in non-English speaking countries, can quickly Google the formal definition of influence to know exactly what I mean. Second is that the definition itself provides an outline of a blueprint for how influence is actually conducted. How influence is done. I found the definition helpful and useful to me in the last 23 and a half years uh, in multiple influence fields. It has helped me to recognize or better recognize usually the hardest step also to analyze, stem, collapse, and actually execute influence campaigns. Now, like I said, there are many definitions besides the one that I'm going to provide, and I'll provide many of them in plenary uh, if there's time, but the key is for any discussion on influence, like with narrative, 
you want to understand what the person is talking about, what definition the person has chosen, or if they develop their own definition. So the definition I use, that influence is producing a desired outcome without apparent materialization of hard power by indirect or seemingly intangible methods. Without force, without formal authority, unseen or insensible, perceptible only in its effects. Now I'd like to compare this indirect idea of influence with the more very direct ideas of persuasion, compliance, and conversion, which I will argue are very different. With persuasion, there's a known agency and a direct approach using sound methodology, sound use of evidence, and logic. Compliance, trying to get people to change behavior without necessarily changing belief, is oftentimes short-lived and demands a threat of violence, getting people to act through the, through the threat of lethal force. And then we have conversion, trying to get people to change their beliefs, which often requires total control of an environment, total societal re-education, and has to be overseen enduringly. One of the examples of attempted conversion is Ataturk Kemal following the First World War, the First World War when Turkey became a state from the former Ottoman Empire. They changed their alphabet. They created European-like secular civil institutions. They touted nationalism and built citizenship schools and workshops around the country to educate the entire population towards more quote-unquote Western standards of a nation-state. Views that are still used in some school textbooks and social studies to this day in Turkey. But after well over a century later, this vast attempt at conversion is still in contentious, contention. Turkish politicians, religious leaders, and citizens argue and sometimes fight over whether Turkey should be more secular or religious, whether Turkey identity is more European or should face more towards the Middle East, and Asia. So back to the term influence, that is specifically producing a desired outcome without apparent materialization of hard power by indirect or seemingly intangible methods. This is a derived from an early English definition of the word influence which very much relied on this idea of the spiritual that influence occurred at the hands of angels, of demons, of gods, in thin places. It had unearthly undertones, divine and spiritual and astral. And this is very much where we get this indirect, sort of seemingly intangible, only seen in its effects phenomenon. Now, of course, today we're able to recognize the deception sometimes, but we can recognize the deception is necessary to make events and behavior appear to happen without, again, the materialization of a formal authority or materialization of direct lethal force. So these spiritual undertones for the ancient phenomenon of in England of influence, very much we see it in today's definition, but of course we know it's not necessarily in thin places or because of divine reasons, it's because of great statecraft, being subtle, 
having stealth, using indirect strategies, playing into people's foundational narratives without necessarily people knowing that they've been influenced. So compare this to the early Chinese perception or, or concept of qi. Qi, as I said earlier, it very much talks to the indirect, the discrete, and the unconventional. But if we look to early Chinese, we see that there are undertones of the mysterious, of something beyond ordinary comprehension, the uncanny and the occult, especially in reference to ethereal events and ghostly phenomenon, which again, we know today, great statecraft, you can have it or conduct an influence campaign. But it's difficult to know influence is happening. When influence is done well, you will not know you're being influenced. When influence is done well, you will not know who the influencer is. When influencer is done very well, you will, or the people, the targets, will become the amplifiers or the agents of the influence campaign itself, unwittingly. And when influence is done extremely well, even historians in the future will not be able to recognize a cogent and purposeful influence campaign. So let's compare influence and chi to the ancient Greek idea of metis. It often refers to influence in the indirect and psychological aspects of power and warfare. Specifically refers to wisdom, cunning, prudence, and skill, as opposed to brute force. Personified originally in mythology uh, as a titan, whose children would be wiser than Zeus. So according to Lawrence Friedman, one of the greatest dichotomies of strategic thought is this distinction between strength and metis, or strength and chi. And he talks about the difference between one seeking, and I quote here, seeking victory in the physical domain and the other in the mental. The idea is that chi and medicine influence are more in the mental domains not just in the physical domain. One relying on being strong and the other on being smart. One depending on courage and the other imagination. One facing the enemy directly and the other approaching indirectly. One prepared to fall with honor and the other seeking to survive through deception. Then Angela Kudvilla and Saul Seasbury go on to suggest that Sun Tzu proposed that the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. And this very oftentimes, those in the fields of influence, medicine, or chi, they often look to Sun Tzu for wisdom, especially with regards to indirect fighting or to winning a war before the inception of the idea. According to Angelo Codville, and I go on, quoting, this advice seems to clash with Clausewitz's description of war as an act of violence pushed to its utmost boundaries. Angelo Codvilla suggests the two concepts are not, however, contradictory. Clausewitz refers to fighting, but fighting is a tool of war, not war itself, compatible with Sun Tzu's vision of war. According to Codvilla, what is important is to select the means which is the most suitable under given conditions. And I would go one step further. And I might argue for us to consider, debate, and discuss 
that the two, that is the direct and the indirect approaches to warfare, are not contradictory at all, are not opposing, but are also not exclusive. I would challenge us to think of combining, when appropriate, the direct and the indirect, the unorthodox and the orthodox, lethal power and elements of national power other than traditional dime, or as it's traditionally taught. Top-down strategies wedded to down-up strategies. A sort of pincer move, collapse an adversary from inside, from within, and from outside, in. Thank you.